This presentation of the Access Utah Holiday Special on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread and Cafe at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open for breakfast and lunch Monday through Saturday until 3. Wishing everyone a happy holiday season. Welcome to the Access Utah Holiday Special. I'm Tom Williams. This has become an annual tradition. And we're happy to uh, bring it to you. Uh, Mike Christiansen on the guitar, and we have with us uh, this year Tim Slover, uh, who can do some readings for us. So thank you for joining us for the Access Utah Holiday Special. Mike Christiansen, thanks for playing us in, and thanks for uh, joining us again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mike Christiansen, uh, now Professor Emeritus of Music at uh, Utah State University. You've been retired one year, two years? Uh, something like that. Yeah, it's... it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's one year. A year, year and a half, yeah. <laughs> and you were telling me before we went on that uh, it's been busier than than before. Retirement, it, I, I hear that happens sometimes. It, it does happen. I, I had heard everyone say that, but uh, it's true. You know, there's a... There's a lot of things to be. I wonder how I ever had a job, really. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> ever had a time to squeeze in a job. That's that, right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work. It's, it's related, but it's uh, down a little bit different channel. And okay. It's really exciting. So we'll talk about that as we go along. We'll hear some great music played by uh, Mike Christiansen. We're joined as well in the studio here by uh, Tim Slover, who is Associate Professor of Theater Studies at University of Utah. Tim Silver, thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Merry Christmas. And uh, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for uh, coming up to, to Logan. It's a great pleasure. I love it up here. Uh, so you, uh, we'll get into talking about a lot of things that you're involved in. Uh, maybe I'll just highlight here at the beginning of the program, you are author of the Christmas Chronicles, which we're airing here on uh, Utah Public Radio. That's true. That's true. Uh, some of my... Uh, Sins and peccadillos are in that book, and now they're out there for everyone to hear. Right. <laughs> Christmas Chronicles, uh, it's 8.30 weeknights uh, and through the 23rd. So it's, it's a wonderful uh, series. We'll talk more about this as we go along. And here's some uh, great um, readings for the holiday on a theme of changes. Changes. Um, you know, many authors have written about this idea that during the Christmas season, especially Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, 
changes can occur, kind of magical or miraculous changes. Think about Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, where Ebenezer Scrooge makes a big change between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day from being an old miser to being a charitable person, or the Grinch, who's whose heart grows three sizes after he hears the Whovillians still celebrating Christmas, even though he's stolen all their presents. I mean, you get the idea. So, yeah, the readings all have to do with changes that Christmas brings about. Let's uh, jump right in. Let's hear a, a, a piece. Mike. That's uh, such a standard, isn't it? It is, and it deals a little bit with changes. Uh, a white Christmas, and we all look forward to having some white for for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if we'll, we will, but we're <laughs> yeah. looking forward to it. <laughs> right. I, it is so thrilling to be in a room with a live, great musician, oh. hearing the music live. <laughs> That's well, the best yeah. Christmas present I've had so far. Yeah, I it, think it we, is wonderful. I think we all have our... Our wishes. I love being around great readers, so it's a, it's a nice, nice combination. Well, yeah. we get one. Oh no, that's me. That's right. That's that's you. <laughs> so, uh, so Mike, you uh, tell me about the uh, your airport gig. We've talked about this before. It's so interesting to me. They, the airport authority hires you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've I've had a lot of friends go through on their the way um, leaving town or, or coming in for the holidays, and uh, they see us playing in the airport, and they think, oh, really? It's come to this, yeah. Because we we have <laughs> right. it looks like we have the cases open, and we're we're um, 
doing this, the street gig, but actually the airport authority hires us every year and has us play down there. And it's a wonderful job. We play a day before Thanksgiving, a couple of days after Thanksgiving, uh, play Christmas Eve, and then we play uh, a couple of days after Christmas when everyone's coming home. And uh, the theory is that it uh, relieves a lot of tension from people that are waiting in security lines or waiting for connecting flights. And uh, I think I read recently a study where they said that the, the two places where people are the, the most tense are in airports and hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so oddly enough, those two places uh, are hiring a lot of live music. And so you're seeing more live music in airports and in hospitals. And uh, we're finding that it, it really does make a difference. We have people standing in security lines that are dancing with each other, and we take requests. And, uh, <laughs> and the same thing when they're making connecting flights. And oh. They're very appreciative. They're singing along, and uh, it really does um, ease the, the tension a little bit. But uh, it's fun just to see the smiles on their faces when they come in and see live music. Yeah. So what? So you you appear, you set up. What? What? Yeah, what yeah. Are, we do. A what little are the reactions from people at that point? Um, well, I, maybe they think it's going to be kind of a flash mob thing, you know, where yeah. we, <laughs> we're going to set up a, a whole production, but it's just it's just the two of us. But but they're very pleasantly surprised. I mean, they seem, you know, they see this gear going in and they wonder what's what's going to happen. And uh, then when they hear it, um, it's just you see the smiles come on their faces. Mm-hmm. And uh, we play Christmas music, but we mix it up a lot, too. We play everything from show tunes to jazz standards to Sting to Jimi Hendrix to everything in between and uh, and then a lot of Christmas music of course mm-hmm. as well well that, that sounds like fun yeah yeah it, it is fun and uh, there again talk about changes uh, the music can really make a, a change in people when they're feeling a little bit uptight or a little bit blue and uh, and the music really makes it nice. And then we try to, every once in a while, there'll be someone waiting for somebody that's coming in on a connecting flight. So we try to make it appear as though they've hired us just for those people. <laughs> right. <laughs> that sounds fun. That does sound fun. Uh, Tim Slover uh, is Associate Professor of Theater Studies at the University of Utah, as I mentioned, author of The Christmas Chronicles. Tell me briefly how that came about. People are, are listening to the series right now on UPR. I'll give another plug for it, uh, 8.30 weeknights uh, through the 23rd. Thank you for that plug. <laughs> uh, there are stories I told my two, my two boys. Um, uh, Mary and I had uh, two children 15 months apart, so they kind of grew up uh, together in the same orbit. And um, they uh, wanted to uh, believe in Santa Claus, and yet their friends kept giving them reasons why they shouldn't. And uh, luckily, I had the answers as to why they should. Uh, and that's how the Christmas Chronicles grew up, the, the story, the true story of, of Santa Claus. And it turned into a wonderful radio series. It was a radio series first, right? And then you turned it, it into a book. Yeah. Right. Uh, Walter Rudolph, I think, is a big Christmas fan. Uh, it used to be the general manager at KBYU. Yeah. Look at his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You'd, you'd have to love Christmas, wouldn't you? Um, and you hired some wonderful people. Uh, Richard Johnstone, uh, just oh, yeah. a wonderful narrator. I understand he's now uh, passed on. He he. Even when he was doing it, he had pancreatic cancer, uh, and the the somehow the living joy in his voice belies or emphasizes or somehow goes with that. But he was a wonderful, remarkable human being. Yeah. So the serendipity to to find him and and and, and a lot of auditioning. Yeah. yeah. Frankly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you are you're also author of a, of well several plays. One uh, that really strikes my fancy, Joyful Noise, which is story of Handel and and uh, his creating his great oratorio, Messiah. 
Right. Uh, one of many oratorios, the one we all know, um, at the point in his career when he thought he wasn't going to be writing anymore uh, because he thought he was washed up. He'd had five failures in a row. Imagine that, five failures in a row, but still had the courage to go on eventually. It took some prodding. Yeah. And that's, that's what the play is about. We'll talk about more of what, uh, what you got going on. Uh, you get you have the opportunity to go to London several times uh, a year. With that tough gig, if you can get it, I guess. <laughs> I do uh, co-host with my dear colleague and friend Jane England a study abroad program in London for students. And now in October, we're taking grown-ups. Uh, this will be our third time. That's really fun. Mm. So let's hear uh, some readings that you've uh, you've brought. You, as you say, the the theme is changes. Changes. Let's start with some animals. Uh, there's a strong and enduring tradition in England and other European countries that on one night, on Christmas Eve, animals are given the power to reason and even to speak. And the tradition grows up because of the animals that were around the manger when, uh, when Christ was born. So the novelist and poet Thomas Hardy, that's where we'll start, he writes wistfully about that tradition, hoping that it could be true. Here's his poem, The Oxen. Christmas Eve, and twelve of the clock. Now they are all on their knees, an elder said, as we sat in a flock by the embers in hearthside ease. We pictured the meek, mild creatures where they dwelt in their strawy pen, nor did it occur to one of us there to doubt they were kneeling then. So fair a fancy few would weave in these years. Yet I feel... If someone said on Christmas Eve, come, see the oxen kneel in the lonely Barton by yonder coombe our childhood used to know, I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. The writer Rudyard Kipling, who's best known for writing the Jungle Book, goes hardy one better. Uh, in his poem called Eddie's Service, he not only wishes for intelligent animals, he gets them. Uh, this is an interesting Christmas poem. He conjures up a time in ancient Britain when Christian Celts mixed with Saxon pagans. And Eddie is a Celt, and he lives at a place called Manhood End. Uh, he's a very dutiful Celtic priest, and he'll preach to anyone. Eddie's service, Rudyard Kipling. Eddie, priest of St. Wilfred, in his chapel at Manhood End, ordered a midnight service for such as cared to attend. But the Saxons were keeping Christmas and the night was stormy as well. Nobody came to the service, though Eddie rang the bell. Wicked weather for walking, said Eddie of manhood end, but I must go on with the service for such as care to attend. The altar lamps were lighted. An old marsh donkey came, bold as a guest invited, and stared at the guttering flame. The storm beat on at the windows. The water splashed on the floor, and a wet, Yoke-weary bullock pushed in through the open door. How do I know what is greatest? How do I know what is least? That is my father's business, said Eddie, Wilfred's priest. But three are gathered together. Listen to me and attend. I have good news, my brethren, said Eddie of manhood end. And he told the ox of a manger and a stall in Bethlehem. And he spoke to the ass of a rider that rode to Jerusalem. They steamed and dripped in the chancel. They listened and never stirred, while just as though they were bishops, Eddie preached them the word. Till the gale blew off on the marshes, and the windows showed the day, and the ox and the ass together wheeled and clattered away. And 
When the Saxons mocked him, said Eddie of manhood end, I dare not shut his chapel on such as care to attend. Well, thinking about these poems, Kipling and Hardy and the traditions about the animals they memorialize, I began meditating on the subject of sheep and what it might like to be might, might be like to be a shepherd. Um, shepherding seems to me to be very good blue collar work, and um, the people I know and are friends of that are blue collar workers are not pious people, uh, and that's why I wrote this. Uh, this is a little piece called "The Sheep," little short story, "The Sheep." I'm uncomfortable with sheep. Sheep have a way of looking at you with what I can only come call dumb, really profoundly dumb malice. Or call it resentment, if you like. Resentment for a life of forced herding and annual fleecing, as though given half a chance and opposable thumbs, they would get you down in the bracken and apply the shears liberally. What a sheep is thinking when it looks at you is, if our position were reversed for just 20 minutes, mate, you'd be in the dip before I could baw. I know, I know, this runs contrary to the received wisdom. Sheep are our woolly friends. They safely graze. As juveniles, they're reputedly meek and mild, etc. It's a lie. All of it. Or at least that's how it looks to me. Admittedly, there are other opinions, and that's what baffles me. People who know sheep and know them well reinforce this pro-sheep propaganda. Anyway, the point is, the discomfort I feel around sheep wouldn't be so bad if I was a, a doctor or a lawyer or, say, an architect. Does a doctor or a lawyer or an architect generally spend quality time with sheep? No, they do not. But I do. I'm a shepherd. I can no more part company with sheep than you could with whatever it is you have to be around when, because of your career. Hey, it's work, man. It's a, it's a pain, but you have to clock in, right? Right. Please consider all this as background to the tale I'm going to tell you now. It's my tale. It happened to me. And it happened around sheep. It was a warmish night, spangled with stars. The sheep were mostly bedded down, but there was still the occasional baw, a sound which again bafflingly seems to soothe my fellow ovine toilers, but always makes me want to crawl out of my skin. Nevertheless, we, and I with gritted teeth, were passing the night abiding in the field. And then it happened. Look up in the sky, gummed old toothless Jacob to me, though not, of course, as distinctly as that. The thing is, he's always saying stuff like that. Look over at that olive tree, he'll say, and you look, and it's an olive tree, and you look back at old toothless Jacob, and he's staring at it and weeping or something. It's pretty irritating, and not just to me. All the shepherds in my Bethlehem local feel the same. Look at that bush. Look at that serpent. Look at that dried-up gourd. We've gotten used to ignoring him. So on this night, when old toothless Jacob wheezed out, look up in the sky, I just said to him, no, you look up in the sky, old toothless Jacob, and stop bothering me. And the sheep are all bah, bah, made me want to scream. Now, here's the funny thing. Unlike other times, when old toothless Jacob would cry wolf, this time the other fellows in the local were looking up in the sky where he was pointing and taking him seriously. No, more than seriously. They were pointing, too, and, and gasping and staring and sort of... I don't know, uulating, I guess, making noises anyway. And one of the fellows, real serious Eli, was chuckling, which, believe me, was a stark and stellar first for him. Okay, 
I get it. It's a joke. Good one, fellas, getting me back for the time I straightened out all their crooks in boiling water, which you have to admit is a pretty funny practical joke. Everybody trying to hook sheep but no hook. Get it? Okay, okay, the laugh's on me, pretending to see whatever the heck old toothless Jacob is showing you up there among the midges and bats, and I'm the only one who can't see it, so now let's all just settle down and go back to resenting the sheep. But like all agricultural workers, and that certainly goes for our local They have to take the joke just that little bit too far. So now, like in unison, which I have to admit is pretty impressive, they suddenly stop their uulating and hand clapping and sandal stomping and whatnot and just go silent like they're listening to something real important. Even the sheep shut their ugly muzzles. Anyway, the joke, of course, which is pretty sophomoric, even if the atmospherics are good, is that they're listening to something and I can't hear it. And I'm supposed to go, oh, what is it? Do you hear what I hear? But I'm not falling for it. Okay, look, fellas, a joke's a joke, I say. But then old toothless Jacob, he says, well, let's go then. And real serious Eli, he says, what, leave our flocks and fields and go even unto Bethlehem, which is a bit of a schlep, really? And everybody says, hey, we can leave the sheep with Mike, which is me. And then I'm like, no way, brethren. What's next? Get Mike to go snipe hunting? If you're going, I'm coming with. I know what sheep are capable of when one man tries to herd them on his own. So the next thing I know, I'm trailing off after these, well, frankly, I don't know, insane members of my local into town. And I can't really tell if it's a joke or not, you know. They're also intense about it. Not really talking as we hit the outskirts of Bethlehem, which to be fair is pretty much all outskirts. Anyway, here's the thing. The sheep are following. I mean, that's what sheep do is follow. I know that. That's their one great talent along with staring. But it's eerie, man. A big bunch of sheep pushing up around our knees and snuffling and seeming just eager to get to whatever we're going. And all my fellow shepherds seeming just as eager. And, well, all I can describe it is as glad. They're glad. As though maybe they've just got tidings they hit the lottery and don't have to be shepherds anymore, which would make me glad. I am just... And I know I keep saying it, but I can't think of another word. Just baffled. Also nervous. Get away, you loathsome, slavering wool balls. I'm talking about the sheep, not the local. Well, where are we heading? Not even into the center of town, such as it is, but apparently into some barn on the edge. And that's when I see it. This is not a good thing, and this is not a good night. Every kind of animal is heading in the same direction we are. Birds are flying, and it's nighttime when they don't, which is weird, and donkeys and, I don't know, foxes and snakes and even, honest to goodness, a Judean lion or two. And it's getting louder and louder, and I'm thinking, wake up, Mike, wake up, this has got to be a nightmare. And the other animals are just as bad as the sheep when we all roll up to the barn. Its doors are open, and it's kind of light inside, a kind of soft glow, and there's a lady sort of half passed out, and an older gentleman with this staff with flowers on it, which is a heck of a trick if you think about it, and in the middle of a bunch of heaving, steaming, noisy animals, a baby. The mom's out of it, but the baby is wide awake, making just as much noise as the animals, not crying, you understand, but just kind of crowing and mooing and, yes, even bawling with all these animals, and then all of a sudden, everything just stops. I mean, all the noise, all the stamping and everything. It's just silent, like in a field. But now with this whole menagerie coming to a screeching halt, there's a hand pulling me down, and I see beside me old toothless Jacob, and he's kneeling. Kneel down, Mike, he says to me, and look. Look at the baby. He's pointing with a trembling finger. Well, he's old, so he's pretty much trembling all the time, but 
the whole local is on their knees, too. Fellas, I say, fellas, you're taking this whole joke too far. I mean, this is, you know, as spectacular as a joke. I'll be laughing over this one for years. This one will keep me warm on cold abiding nights. But come on now. And then I see it. It's not just the local that's kneeling. All the animals are kneeling, which I didn't even know some of these animals could do. I mean, how can a pigeon kneel? But they're doing it. And like I said, it's totally silent now. Even the baby is quiet, and he's looking at all these animals and all of us with a solemn eye, and his mother kind of comes to and kneels to, and the old man levers himself down onto his knees using his flowery staff. So whatever, I don't want to be the odd man out. I kneel too. Look at the baby. Look at the baby. I'm looking, Jacob. A star up in the sky sort of ticks over, and it's midnight now. And a sheep pressed up against me says this. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Crazy. Crazy sheep make me real, real uncomfortable. But maybe not so much just then. So that's my story. Make, out of, make of it what you will. Maybe it was just a sort of woolly dream. But I have to say, no, I don't have to say. Like I said, make of it what you will. And old toothless Jacob, look. Look at the baby. That's Tim Slover reading uh, his composition. What's that called again? The Sheep. The Sheep. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, you are listening to the uh, Access Utah Holiday Special on Utah Public Radio. Tom Williams with uh, Tim Slover and Mike Christiansen. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll have uh, more music and more readings for the season. This presentation of the Access Utah Holiday Special on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread and Cafe at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open for breakfast and lunch Monday through Saturday until 3. Wishing everyone a happy holiday season. We're back with the Access Utah Holiday Special. I'm Tom Williams. This is our annual tradition. We have some great music and some great readings for the season. And I have with me in studio Tim Slover, who is Associate Professor of Theater Studies at University of Utah. He's uh, providing readings for us. And Mike Christiansen, Professor Emeritus of Music at Utah State University. Mike, uh, let's uh, hear some more music. What, uh, okay. what do you have for us? A lot of people might recognize this as God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, but I found this version that's called God Rest You Merry Sheep.
<laughs> love it. Love it. That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> Did you do the arrangement there? Yeah. It was, yeah. As I was hearing about sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of have a little sheep bounce to it. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, before we go to, to more readings, do you have another, uh, another selection for us? Sure, sure. Uh, this tune is... Uh, very, very popular. We get um, a lot of requests for this this time of year and probably one of the most uh, popular uh, Christmas tunes that there is. And um, it's, uh, it's very fun to play on the guitar. Very, very nice tune. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. So, Mike, you uh, you said you're very busy. Where do where, where all of you have you been? You go around the United States, international? Yeah, every everywhere. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've been everywhere, man. That's yeah. kind of a, um, yeah. A, a lot of traveling. Uh, I've been putting. Um, I've written some guitar curriculum for a company, Consonus Music, and we're putting it uh, in the schools throughout the country. And uh, guitar is becoming very popular in in the classroom. Uh, they're teaching guitar just like they would band orchestra choir, and it's kind of coming on like a tsunami around the country. And we're we put together a blended learning, which is a combination of online material with live instruction for teachers to use to teach those courses. So, traveling around the country, showing teachers how to how to teach and how to use that blended learning, and it's just. Uh, this time of year, it's it's very rewarding, too, to go out and hear some of these young students play. They play these mm-hmm. Christmas guitar ensemble pieces and uh, these Christmas tunes. And uh, whether they're into heavy metal or they're into classical, um, they, uh, there's a, a kind of a common thread in, in Christmas music that runs through. And uh, so they all sort of come together at this time. And regardless of what their particular taste is in a particular genre, they all like Christmas music, and uh, it's it's fun to hear the kids play. And you, of course, have a guitar tradition in your family. Yes. Uh, your, your son has taken over your position at the university, right? Right. And then my youngest daughter is a guitar professor down in Texas. And uh, I tried to talk him out of it, but uh, <laughs> they <laughs> they insisted. And I'm, I'm glad they did. It's been very rewarding for them. And 
very rewarding for us. And I um, have a, another daughter that uh, plays piano that uh, lives in Salt Lake, and uh, she's a social worker down there. And then my second, the oldest son, was the smart one. He became a plastic surgeon. So we figure, okay, we figure if it if it doesn't work for any of us, we can go live with him. He can support you. That's right. Yeah. And then what about the grandkids? Are they picking up the guitar? They are. Yeah, I'm teaching uh, a couple of the grandkids. I have one grandson that's uh, studying with a fellow up in uh, Oregon, and then I teach one of my grandsons Skype lessons. And then uh, another one I teach, he uh, lives fairly close by, and comes over. And uh, it's a bit of a challenge because I'm grandpa and I, I get lines like, I don't know if I want to practice this, grandpa, <laughs> and you can't make me. And so I always come back with the lines of, you're right, I can't make you practice that, but I can tell you that we won't go to the vending machine and you won't learn another <laughs> song until you play that song. <laughs> You do have. You some don't ever want to tell a grandpa yeah. he can't make you. That's right. You have some levers of power. Yes, that. that's okay, true. Very good. Uh, Tim Slover, you uh, you are involved in a very interesting project, um, Shakespeare. Uh, I, I don't know what the word would be. Translating Shakespeare into the vernacular? I'm, you can tell me about this. Uh, that's what uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is calling it, uh, is the translations project. Um, they're taking, I think, all the plays. Um, uh, only one's been done so far, the obscure Timon of Athens. I guess they figured you can't do much to that one anyway. And they, uh, are, they want them translated, yeah, into vernacular language. Hmm. Um, there, there's some money behind this. Of course, some mm-hmm. purists will say, you know, this is <laughs> this is sacrilege. Uh, they will, and they probably just shouldn't go to these productions. Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, you know, I don't blame them. Yeah. Um, but uh, this may may I think the idea behind the grant is it may unlock Shakespeare for some people. That, that's the idea, I suppose. Yeah. And to, and to move on from a modern version to the real thing. Yeah, it's daunting. I mean, <laughs> rewriting Shakespeare is not what I had in mind when right. I decided to be a writer. Yeah. Well, it's an it, it, interesting project. And then I'd, uh, I want to plug something that uh, seems very interesting. This is a new project of yours, Jill at the Kilns. Tell me about this. Uh, it's, um, it's a play about um, a, a young woman, a 16-year-old, I think that's okay to say a girl, who was uh, one of the refugee children during World War II. They got sent up from um, London, in this case to Oxford, uh, to stay, to be safe during the war, and found herself in the home of her favorite author of all time, C.S. Lewis. And so it's the story of uh, that fraught household uh, and... Um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien enters into the story. Um, it's uh, it's a fascinating period, World War II in England, all those blacked out windows and people doing without, and yet an amazing period of creativity for writers. And so you're working on this. Will it, do you know when it'll come out? Or? Uh, when I you know, get up off my lazy butt and <laughs> okay. really work hard on it. It's uh, it's something I've outlined, but I haven't yeah. even written word one of it yet, but I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. Maybe we get Mike to motivate you, you know, the way he does his grandkids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea, actually. That's what it takes. You, you know, use different motivation probably. Uh, so that'll be coming out. And then uh, we should mention that Joyful Noise is playing right now in, uh, in Provo. It is. It's the Covey Center in the little in the little black box, which is a terrific place for theater because um, you can hear every word. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they 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 are doing it through this coming week. All right.
Let's hear some more readings. Well, thank you. People change as well as animals is the idea here. Uh, And I have two pieces uh, that I think uh, illustrate that pretty well. One of them is going to be a little surprising for some people. If you know the name A.A. Milne, that author, you know him as the author of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, But he was a very prolific humor writer and wrote for Punch Magazine quite a lot also. Um, This is about a change that you can make from being someone who doesn't have a present for somebody into somebody else. This is called A Hint for Next Christmas by A.A. Milne. He writes, I'm reminded of the ingenuity of a friend of mine, William by name, who arrived at a large country house for Christmas without any present in his bag. He had expected neither to give nor to receive anything. But to his horror, he discovered on the 24th that everybody was preparing a Christmas present for him and that it was taken for granted that he would require a little privacy and brown paper on Christmas Eve for the purpose of addressing his own offerings to others. He had wild thoughts of telegraphing to London for something to be sent down and spoke to other members of the house party in order to discover what sort of presents would be suitable. What are you giving our host? He asked one of them. Mary and I are giving him a book, said John, referring to his wife. William then approached the youngest son of the house and discovered that he and his next brother Dick were sharing in this, that, and the other. When he had heard this, William retired to his own room and thought profoundly. He was the first down to breakfast on Christmas morning. All the places at the table were piled high with presents. He looked at John's place. The top parcel said, To John and Mary from Charles. William took out his fountain pen and added a couple of words to the inscription. It then read, To John and Mary from Charles and William. And in William's opinion, looked just as effective as before. He moved on to the next place. To Angela from Father, said the top parcel. And William, wrote William. At his hostess's place, he hesitated for a moment. The first present there was for, quote, darling mother from her loving children. It did not seem that an ad and William was quite suitable, but his hostess was not to be deprived of William's kindly thought. Twenty seconds later, the handkerchiefs from John and Mary and William expressed all the nice things he was feeling for her. He passed on to the next place. It's, of course, impossible to thank every donor of a joint gift. One simply thanks the first person whose eyes one happens to catch. Sometimes William's eye was caught, sometimes not. But he was spared all embarrassment, and I can recommend his solution of the problem with perfect confidence to those who may be in a similar predicament next Christmas. (laughs) On a maybe more serious note, uh, this is a poem called Embrace. Come, embrace. Clasp hands and hearts, and find each other's secret wish, for God's sake, or else the babe lies spent amid the cattle, shot from home and heaven to no effect. Joseph does not heed Rome's prideful birth town summons. Mary faces neither threatened stones nor promised sword. Angels forbear, and shepherds stare into the starless void, and all God's good scheming for us lies unplanned. Embrace. Be forever reconciled, though the reconciliation weak man lasts but an hour. The next perhaps endures for two. But let not another leaden moment pass that could be burnished gold. Or else the manger's load is only straw. The beasts who chew it never taste the advent grace of genuflection and of sudden speech. In distant regions of geography, the men of science plot astral charts but shake their heads and murmur their dejection. 
canceling a lifetime store of journeys towards the unappearing star. Embrace, awake from peevish sleep of wrongs, be healed of hate's arthritic grip, be cheered and cheer, be warmed and kindle heat. Who knows but that we shall never again meet round this hearth, this Christmas board, for life flings all apart, still more does death. Who knows but that now, this heartbeat plucked from time is not alone the instant for taking hands and binding hearts, or else the tetrarch's murder of sweet boys is but anguish in the dusty streets, the blood which washed the cross no earthly use. Look, here is Christmas, come again for us, our constant lover. Let us embrace. That is uh, Tim Slover, reading A.A. A. Milne, and uh, was that last one yours? Yeah, very good. Tim Slover uh, is with us. He's uh, giving us readings for the season. Uh, he is Associate Professor of Theater Studies at the uh, University of Utah. And uh, Mike Christiansen, Professor Emeritus of Music at Utah State University, is with us as well. You're listening to the Access Utah Holiday Special. Glad you're with us. Mike, let's hear some more music. What, uh, what do you have for us? This is uh, probably one of the most, if not the most popular Christmas tune. Um, you're probably familiar with the story that was originally written on the guitar. Um, the story is that the fellow went to the town and uh, was commissioned to write a piece for the congregation, the church congregation there, and he was an organist and got to the town and the organ was broke. And uh, there's, um, I, I guess there's uh, some belief that the mice had eaten through the billows on the organ and whatever the reason was, the organ wouldn't work. So there was another fellow in the town who had a guitar, and he said, why don't we write it, compose it on the guitar? So they wrote Silent Night. So that's uh, Silent Night. Uh, beautiful. Uh, Silent Night just seems to be the, perhaps the most special of all the... Simplicity is sometimes the best. Yeah. And uh, 
Yeah, it's a wonderful piece of music, and uh, it's nice to do. There, It leaves the capability to do a lot of arrangements. The first part of it that I played was more like the old traditional, but the second part had been spiced up a little bit. But uh, And you have to be careful when you're playing a tune like that because uh, you can put too much into it to mm, where it doesn't, right. uh, too many ingredients that doesn't make it taste that, that good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of it puts me in mind of the uh, you know, super embellished national anthem renditions we sometimes get. It, yeah, it, it can be it could get to be too much. Sometimes. Yeah, I know uh, we had a uh, guest clinician come here once, a fellow from England, a wonderful, wonderful, um, very well-known jazz guitarist, Martin Taylor, and he was playing somewhere over the rainbow, and he made the comment that. Uh, you, you have to be very careful with that one. That's a mm. sacred tune, and you have to, if you do too much to it, it can ruin it. Yeah, I could see that. Do you have another tune you could um, play for us this morning? Yeah, sure. Um, this piece is, uh, I play around Christmas time. It's not really, this is an original piece, and um, I was asked to write a piece of music for a publisher once um, and was given free reign to write whatever I would like to write, and I wrote it uh, and entitled the piece Dreamcatcher. And it wasn't for the traditional Native American Dreamcatcher that I that I named it. It was just because that year I was able to catch a lot of dreams, and every once in a while that happens. And I think sometimes this time of year is is a great time to reflect on the on the dreams that we were able to catch in that last year. So right. this is Dreamcatcher. Thank you. 
Dreamcatcher. That's uh, Mike Christiansen's own composition. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for that. Um, let's turn back to uh, Tim Slover. What do you have for us next? Uh, something short? Yes. Um, I, uh, I love this piece. This is um, – there was a, a, a Franciscan friar named Fra Giovanni uh, and um, – in 1513, he wrote a letter to a friend of his, uh, the Countess Aladja Aldobrandeschi, uh, in 1513 on Christmas Eve. He was also a scholar. He was an architect. He was an amazing man. This is what he wrote to her in that letter. I salute you, he said. There's nothing I can give you which you have not. But there is much that while I cannot give, you can take. No heaven can come to us unless our hearts find rest in it today. Take heaven. No peace lies in the future which is not hidden in this present instant. Take peace. The gloom of the world is but a shadow. Behind it, yet within our reach, is joy. Take joy. And so at this Christmas time I greet you with the prayer that for you now and forever the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Hmm. Beautiful. Uh, our wish for everyone. Exactly. Yes. Tim Slover, thank you so much. I think we just have uh, time for uh, Mike Christiansen to uh, play us out with a, with a piece, perhaps. So before uh, you do that, let me uh, thank Tim Slover, Associate Professor of uh, Theater Studies at uh, University of Utah. Thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And uh, Tim Slover's uh, Christmas Chronicles is airing on Utah Public Radio weeknights at 8.30 through the 23rd. And I uh, should mention again that Joyful Noise is at the Covey Center in Provo for another week, I think. Uh, and uh, Mike Christiansen is all over the country. And uh, <laughs> do, you, do you get a little break for Christmas? Yes. Yeah, well, except for the airport. Yeah, except know, the airport. You, you can do that there, through but, Christmas. Uh, okay. Yeah, it'll be Christmas with the family. And okay. We're, uh, we're very Danish, so Christmas, uh, we have a lot of traditions that we do at Christmas. Okay. All right. Uh, just briefly, what, what are the traditions? Oh, uh, well, uh, we uh, dance around the tree on Christmas Eve and string Christmas carols. We open a lot of the presents on, on Christmas Eve. Santa Claus visits us on Christmas morning. Uh, the day of Christmas Eve in the afternoon, we put... Uh, uh, food out for the animals. We, we feed the, the birds and we try to put some food out for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a traditional Christmas dinner and we have uh, a rice pudding uh, at dinner and uh, someone has a nut buried in their pudding and whoever gets the nut has good luck for a year and gets a prize. And there are other traditions, but those are some of them. That sounds great. So uh, these are. That's right. Let's go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> get the nut. Uh, uh, Danish traditions. Yeah. Danish traditions. Yes. Yeah. So it's a Christiansen S E N. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, Tim, let's not neglect you. What are your traditions? Uh, My grandfather came from Southampton, actually Northampton in England. And ever since then, long before, you know, I was around, they they the tradition is eat seafood uh, because of that at Christmas Eve. So my mother used to make uh, oyster stew. She's passed away now. That's that duty is passed on to Mary now. And uh, uh, so we have a lot of seafood on Christmas Eve. And then uh, everything is very strict on Christmas. Um, nobody can open presents together, you know, that sort of – because everybody thought that their present that they got for the person's very special. So right. you watch while everyone opens that and ooze and ahs and move on. So, yeah, and also at, at our house, we'll wrap anything. 
We'll wrap anything. It's not like lavish gifts, but it's like this box of Kleenex needs to be wrapped or something. So present opening goes on a very long time. <laughs> that sounds fun. We'll, we'll go to both of your houses for Christmas. That good. Well, Merry Christmas to both of you gentlemen. And, and Mike, uh, thanks so much. Uh, Professor Meredith at Utah State University. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, you've been listening to the Axis Utah Holiday Special on Utah Public Radio. Um, so I'm Tom Williams, and uh, along with uh, Tim and Mike, we uh, wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Let's uh, hear a tune to, to play us out here. This presentation of the Access Utah Holiday Special on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread and Cafe at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open for breakfast and lunch Monday through Saturday until 3. Wishing everyone a happy holiday season. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. You do not want to get to the end of your life and discover that you do not have a pink knit cap. Trust me, I know. I used to commute by ferry from Port Orchard, Washington to Seattle every day. It was a trip that took two hours each way. We pretended that we weren't too stupid to live by telling ourselves that we could pop up our laptops and make that time productive. Mostly, we didn't do that, but opted instead to just talk, and as a result, we developed some amazing friendships. We would gather in the same part of the foot ferry each day and together celebrate birthdays, holidays, and victories. It was like college again, and we had a giant floating dorm room. If you were down, you could count on a core group of friends to lift your spirits at the end of the day. Our group claimed a below deck, a windowless section of the boat in the nose of the foot ferry where there were usually spots available because normal people preferred the prime seats that came with a view. One of our friends was a funny, salty woman named Carla who seemed to have been fighting cancer her entire life. She would beat it back each time and it would return. She just pushed on through things and didn't miss nearly as much time as one might expect. She was a tough lady who never dwelt on her own challenges that were, by definition, harsher than any of ours because they were always life-threatening. One day, some of the women on the commute planned a special surprise encouragement party for Carla. We would present her with a quilt, and each of us would contribute a square we created to make a blanket. We were all given the materials. I took mine and planned to ask my wife for help. I didn't really know how to create a quilt square. It was a job I intended to do, but each night there were a host of urgent things demanding my attention. There were church meetings, errands to run, a big lawn to be mowed, and at that point I had a job that never wanted to be left behind. If I got any free time, 
I might crash in front of the television to rest my head for a few minutes before going to bed, but most of my days were filled with things I thought were important and urgent. Part of my commute included meeting a blind friend when he got off work and walking with him to the ferry. He was perfectly capable of getting there on his own, but I enjoyed his company and it made the trip much faster for him if he could, as we called it, hitch a ride to the boat. One day as we got on the boat, one of my friends presented him with a pink knit cap and he put it on. I thought it was odd and wondered if I should tell him he was wearing a pink hat. After we got down in the nose of the boat, I saw that all of my friends were wearing pink knit caps, except for Carla and myself. It was the party. The quilt was there, and the boat had been decorated to mark the event. I tried to quickly move away from Carla, but there were no seats, and ended up sitting right next to her when the quilt was presented. It was like the scene at the end of the Jimmy Stewart Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Someone made a speech telling Carla how much she was loved and said that everyone wearing a pink knit cap had contributed to make the quilt. She was overwhelmed and the spirit of love was thick in the air. And all I wanted, more than anything in the world, was to rewind time and get my priorities straight. I've lost track of Carla, but last I saw her, she was still fighting back cancer. I hope eventually it left her alone. But I've not forgotten the feelings I had that day. So I'm here to warn you. If you want to get a new car, a fancy watch, a cool title at work, or take in the sensations of Maui, I say go for it. You might even fill your life with dependable attendance at church and scheduled visits with your friends. That is admirable, and it shows that you're trying to do the right things. But if you get to the end of your life and you have no pink knit cap on, oh, you're going to wish you could do it over. It is the season of giving. If you think you can quickly buy your way into the holiday cheer at the last minute, you might not be laying the ground necessary to get a cap. It can be a wonderful life but you have to pay close attention to your priorities or you'll end up capless when that final scene unfolds. And trust me, if you don't have a pink neck cap on, not much else will matter. I know, I've been there. This is Steve Eaton. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.